who you claim knows all things, is all-powerful, and is completely good, and yet the world is the way it is. How do you justify that, Christian? Why would I believe in a God who thinks this is good? Why would I believe in a God who allows such things in the lives of people out there, but even in your life? Can you honestly tell me that your life is better since knowing God? Is it easier? Do you always understand what God is doing? Do you not ask questions about how this could be God's plan, a good God's plan who knows all things and has all power to stop anything? Hard questions, right? Questions that do reverberate in our heart because we've asked those questions. Because we don't know why the trials and hardships and sufferings and pain and sadness that we've experienced have happened to us. Sometimes we feel we might have a little bit of an understanding. Maybe over time you begin to see the benefit. But do we know exactly why God goes this way or that, or the wind blows this way or that? No. So we struggle with that too, because as humans, we struggle not knowing things. And we have a very hard time trusting people, much less God. So how do you answer that? How do you deal with suffering, trial, hardship, testing when it comes as a Christian? How do you answer those questions differently than someone who's an unbeliever? Why do you keep coming here even though you don't have all the answers and you do get frustrated and you do have a hard time? Why are you here, Christians? What comfort do you have? As we wrestle with this very difficult question, I want to lay just a couple things as groundwork because we can't cover all of Scripture today, and this is a very big topic. But I'd like to lay out a few ground truths to frame our discussion of why God would allow trials, suffering, and testing to come into our lives. Here's a couple things that Scripture says very clearly from the beginning. One, God is working with a very broken world. It's true, God created a perfect world in the beginning, and he said it was very good. But then the world was corrupted by sin. Humans brought sin into this world. And since then, all creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, because of how messed up everything is like tornadoes hitting Evansville in the middle of January, February, whenever we are. Like hurricanes rocking the coast. Like earthquakes coming out of the blue. Lightning, hail, disaster. Number two, God is working with obstinate people. 
Each and every person in this world is by nature an enemy of God. You know what that means? Each and every one of us work against God and his goodwill for this world. You think that makes God's job easy? No, because not even Christians have an easy time listening to him. Truth number three, God is playing the long game. Let's make no mistake, God never promises that we won't go through trials, hardships, and sufferings. He never promises Christians that their life is going to be easy. Instead, what does God promise? That he has good plans for us. Plans to prosper us and to give us a future. What is that ultimate future God wants us to have? Eternity with him in heaven. Not just a good life for 70, 80 years. So he's going to make decisions that focus on that goal, not on temporary joy. And the fourth truth I want to start with is that God uses trials to forge us into his soldiers. How are soldiers made? Pain. Discipline. Following orders. Having a cause that is crystal clear even when the going gets tough so that the tough keep going. And God says this in the book of James. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So are you ready to be mature and complete, Christians? If you say yes, do you know what you're signing up for? Abraham signed up for the ultimate test. Isn't the section that we just read from Genesis insane? The good God of the universe asked Abraham, someone he had asked many things from already, a man that he had called out of a, a different land to leave his family, to leave his homeland, to cross country he had never crossed before, not in a car, not in a train, but by foot with all of his family into a foreign land infested with other powerful nations. On the promise that he would give that land to his descendants, descendants that he did not yet have. And he was already very old. On top of that, God made him wait another 10, 20 years waiting on God to keep his promise to give him a child. And in the meantime, he turned 100 and his wife turned 90. And yet a year before he had Isaac, God came to him in human form when he does that in the Old Testament, it calls him the angel of the Lord. 
And he came with two angels and sat and dined with Abraham and said, I didn't forget you. In one year's time, I will come back and you will have a child. That was Sarah's reaction (laughs) in the tent behind them. And God heard her. And he said to Abraham, why did your wife just laugh? She says to defend himself, I didn't laugh. God said, oh yeah, you did. That's why he's called Isaac. His name means laughter. And a year later he came back and there was the son, the promised son, the one that God had promised would take over that future promised land, would become descendants as numerous as all the stars and all the sand on the seashore, which is a limitless number. Good luck trying to count all of those little grains and all of those stars in a non-light-polluted sky. Isaac was a fulfillment of God keeping his promises. He could look into his face every day and and remember that God keeps his word. It may take a while. It may be frustrating. You may make mistakes along the way or try to fix things on your own. But God remains faithful even when you are faithless. Isaac was a symbol of God's faithfulness to him. Despite himself. And then God asks him to sacrifice him. I can't imagine as a father, Abraham's emotions, as soon as those words came to him from God. Take your son, your only son, to the mountain that I have told you, Moriah, and sacrifice him there. God doesn't say why. He doesn't tell him it's a test. He says it just like every other command, just go and do it. And to Abraham's credit, he gets up in the morning, first thing, probably before he thinks about it too much. I don't know if he told Sarah. I don't know if I would have. He cuts wood and he gets on the road brings two servants, and a three-day journey follows. There's a lot of symbolism here, isn't there? His only son, three days. You can't even help but think about certain things as this account goes. And when he gets to the foot of the mountain, he says, Servants, stay here. And as he's walking up with his son Isaac, who has the wood for his own sacrifice on his back, Again, more symbolism. Wood on the back, going up the mountain for a death he knows nothing about or doesn't deserve. He asks his father, now here's the salt. Father, where's the lamb? Abraham gives a very clever answer. The Lord will provide. Trust, hope, Faith, born through trial, hardship, endurance, and the power of God 
hearing the word, believing the word, trusting in God's word, filled by the Holy Spirit, somehow Abraham took one step after another to do the very thing that was his worst nightmare. He gets to the top, and who knows what Isaac is thinking as his father takes off the wood, he lays it down, he binds his hands, he picks him up, he lays him on the pyre. He has the fire in one hand and the knife in the other. Imagine his eyes, hopefully, as a child, are looking into his father's eyes with a childlike faith and not a watery terror. Is my father a monster? God told him to do it? That doesn't make it sound better. By the miracle of faith born through trial, Abraham is about to do the impossible. Now, if you feel that at that moment that there's no possible way you could have ever held that knife or made it up that mountain or even set out in the first place, I would like to echo your sentiments. That's what astounds me about this whole account. How did Abraham, a human, do something like this? How did he have the faith to even take one step out the door. And the only answer in all of Scripture that we can find is the truth that God states all along. Faith comes by hearing the message. And the message is heard through the word of Christ. No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. No one can believe like this unless God gives you such faith. He trains such faith in the fire of trial. He has us practice through one challenge after another, another unanswered question after another, pain, hardship, trial, suffering, tears. To learn obedience by getting to our wit's end, having nothing left, nothing else to cling on but God, as we cry out, I can't do anything. And there we feel. I know Lutherans don't talk about feeling very often. We feel and we know that God has to save us. And He does. And every time that happens, the next time it happens, we remember. God does impossible things. God makes a way. God can create faith in this hard heart. God can give me the ability to do the impossible. God can make me have faith and stand in the face of trial. God is worth believing in. Because he gave his son, his one and only son, for me. That's the object of our faith. Where does our faith come from? Our faith comes from the Lord. 
the power he filled into that faith as Jesus Christ was baptized into death. In order that we who are baptized into his name may be rescued from our death and his resurrection may become our own. Think about what God had to do to send Jesus here for us. He had to purposely empty his son of all his power to protect himself, all of his resilience, all of his authority. He had to make his son nothing so that sinful, broken people like you and me who have done terrible things could place it all on his back, could inflict it all on him so that he could feel the pain and the evil of this world that we hate so much that he could carry the cross and the load of all of that sin on his back. The difference between him and Isaac, though, is there would be no substitute for Jesus. Jesus would allow his hands to be bound, have his hands pierced on a cross and his feet pierced to let his life bleed out and the punishment of hell weigh on his shoulders. No one to save him, not even his father. And he would look to his father and say, Father, why have you abandoned me? Why have you forsaken me? How could you do this to me? And yet he knew that it was the will of God to save you. And despite the pain, despite the suffering, despite his ability to blast off that cross and wipe out all sin in us in that very moment and be done with it, he chose not to. He took it so that what Abraham said on that mountain would always be true. The Lord will provide. You want to know something awesome about that mountain? Moriah is the same mountain that Solomon built the temple. Isn't that crazy? He built the temple on that same mountain where Isaac was substituted by a ram. And for generations, the Israelites came and sacrificed animals in place of their own sins, looking forward to the one lamb the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world once and for all, providing forgiveness and redemption for every son and daughter of man. Thanks be to God. That gives us a different perspective then, doesn't it? When God calls us to bear up under trial, and hardship, and trouble, and persecution, and sadness, and danger, and sword. How could a good God let me do this? How could I go through all of this? Why is he not with me? Why does he not care about me? 
How could a good God, with all the knowledge in the world and all the power, let this happen? Simple answer? Because he loves you too much to only care about your feelings. Let me say that one more time. That's a big truth. God loves you too much to only care about your feelings. He wants more for you. He's not going to avoid the hard things to save you some temporary pain. He's not going to filter out your life so that you never go through any trials of any kind. But you never turn to him in desperation. And that's what it takes for us to call out to him for mercy, for hope, for help. To look for the ram that's provided instead of trying to sacrifice yourself on your own altar with your arrogance and your pride, thinking you can do it on our own. God has to terrify us sometimes and allow those things to happen, not through his own evil, because God is good, but using what he has to work with. He weaves it all together for the ultimate good of his people. That through the fiery trials of today, you may have a more polished and refined faith for tomorrow. And that ultimately when you face your death, whether it's today or 70 years from now, you do not need to be afraid. Because your faith is complete by the power of the Holy Spirit. It clings in Jesus Christ alone. Everything else you hold with a loose grip because you know you can't save it. You can't keep it unless he allows it. And ultimately, if you have planted your loved ones in heaven, you will see them again. Let me give you a couple final truths from Scripture to give you comfort, just as they gave Abraham great comfort. Number one, suffering does not mean God has abandoned you. You're not being punished. Jesus was punished as your substitute. That's not why you're going through hardship. That's not how God works. It is finished. Two, God testing you does not mean he is punishing you. Again, if you are going through a test of faith, think instead that God thinks some pretty amazing things about you. He thinks you're his. And he knows you're going to trust in him. Number three, God is not the author of evil. We are and Satan is. Don't forget that. Don't blame him for the evil out there. Four, despite a broken world and our sinfulness, God still finds a way to plan good. And five, God has provided so much more than a ram. As you go out to face your day and you prepare for tomorrow and the trials they may bring, don't just look at that with dread. Don't just think, Pastor, you're telling me I'm, I'm not going to feel better tomorrow? No, I'm saying you can. 
Because God says you can, even in the midst of trials. Here are God's words from Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Amen. Let it be so. Amen. Please rise. May the peace of God which transcends all understanding guard and keep your hearts in Christ Jesus. Amen. Let's join together in confessing our faith with the words of the Apostles' Creed.